On February 8, 2024, KEI hosted a discussion on issues related to the growing relationship between North Korea and Russia with longtime North Korea expert Dr. Andrei Lankov of Kukman University. Hello, I'm Troy Stagron, Senior Director and Fellow here at the Korea Economic Institute. For the first time since the end of the Cold War, North Korea has embraced Russia as a key component of its foreign policy. Since Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin met in September, reporting suggests that North Korea has sent Russia two and a half million artillery shells, and that Russia has begun helping North Korea evade UN financial sanctions and is suspected of providing technical assistance with North Korea's successful satellite launch last year. To discuss these developments and where North Korea's relationship with Russia is heading, we are glad to have Dr. Andrei Lunkov with us here today. Andre is a leading expert on North Korea and is currently a professor at Kukman University and a director at NK News. We'll be setting aside some time for audience Q&A at the end of the event. For those watching online, please place your questions into the comment section on YouTube. With that, Andre, the floor is yours. Uh, well, so I will start from a short, quite short remarks, maybe five, seven minutes, uh, which is four or five slides, and then probably it will be time to start talking. Uh, first of all, it's I would probably politely disagree. It's not the first time, it's the second time. There was an attempt to reposition Russia. Actually, there were less pronounced attempts, uh, but there was a serious attempt to reposition Russia into the North Korean foreign policy back in 2014. This ended in basically nothing. And uh, I think that the currently the current changes might be important in short, maybe midterm uh, prospects perspective, uh, but uh, are unlikely to be really big in terms of well everything else. Uh, in, in in terms of well the long term long term prospects. Having said that. Having said that, uh, when we are talking about relations between North Korea and Russia, we probably uh, have to look about three separate parts of these relations. Uh, first of all, we should talk about um, we should talk about uh, military pure military cooperation. There have been reports about Russian uh, North Korea shipping significant amount of shells. I'm not sure whether it's two and a half million or quarter million, whichever, but there are many reports from the front lines in Ukraine that they are present and there were reports about North Korean ballistic missiles. However, however, I think that it's uh, not going to last for a long time because of very simple reasons. North Koreans are willing to sacrifice some part of what they have because they can sell all shells. They produced uh, believe, fully believing that they were just losing money and they suddenly delivered, uh, discovered that this is sellable. Well, nice surprise. Uh, but uh, but uh, are they going uh, to give everything to Russia? No. Because they are afraid of many places, including this city, which is probably very high at their list of possible threats, and they don't go, not going to give away everything they have. So there is a limited amount. They will give away maybe, I don't know, 30%, 50%. It's up to the North Korean generals to decide. Then what? 
not much. Some people say about uh, more production of ammunition, maybe with some Russian technical and material assistance, but we have problems. We have problems of infrastructure, no paved roads, 700 kilometers of paved roads, the average speed on the railway about 15 kilometers an hour, a very sorry state of power grid, so it's not going to be a game changer. Then military cooperation as technology transfer, which have been discussed, as already mentioned, that possible transfer of technology in relation to satellite. Again, first of all, I don't see much enthusiasm on the Russian side, uh, because once this technology is given to the North Koreans, North Koreans can easily resell it. And to third parties, cutting out the Russian market for these technologies and weapons based on this technology. So I see it as a part of diplomacy, kind of threat diplomacy in dealing with South Korea, because one of the most important tasks of the Russian diplomacy is to prevent South Korea from selling ammunition to Ukraine. And I easily see how, say, uh, Russian uh, side makes conditions that if uh, South Koreans are selling shells to Ukraine. Well, Russia will do technology transfer. If they don't sell, they don't do it. Well, or do it on a very small scale. And finally, the economy, the normal economic compatibility, it's a kind of a reef which have sunk a lot of the joint projects, which were uh, basically uh, the major problem is that economies of North and uh, North Korea and Russia are not mutually compatible, not mutually compatible, uh, because there is a short list of items. North Koreans can produce pro and sell profitably uh, items they have um, competitive advantage in, and pretty much none but one of these items is of any interest for the Russian side. North Korea is producing coal. Uh, and minerals, but you guess for the country which has been in control of Siberia for 300 years, it's not an urgent need. Uh, North Koreans are producing seafood, but you know, when I was departing, uh, me and my wife spent some time explaining our youngest daughter, a great lover of seafood, that the uh, traditional Russian view of seafood is a cheap protein for those who cannot afford real stuff that is pork and beef. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, with some exceptions in Vladivostok, but it was an exceptional part. It's what we just lectured our daughter for 30 minutes about why basically seafood is despised but there are some caveats. Uh, yes, so, and the only item is labor. And from 1946, not 1965, as claimed very often, but from 1946, there was no, which is basically 80 years by now, there was not a single year when North Korean workers were not employed in some parts of Russia, in some kind of Russian industries. Uh, so it's 80 years, and it's going to continue. And I can easily see, especially now, when uh, Russian economy is uh, going through a mild boom. Yes, I'm repeating, mildly booming. And there is a great demand for labor, driven largely but not exclusively by the demand for skilled labor by the military and military production and armed forces. So great shortage of labor. So there is a big market for the North Korean workers, and I expect a lot of them to arrive. But otherwise, I think that it's not sustainable with the important exceptional workers, unless, however, there is one caveat, uh, because the periods when there was a real active exchange between North Korea and Russia have always been periods 
when such exchanges were generously and heavily subsidized by the Russian government. Uh, but it's, is it going to happen again? I'm skeptical because um, Russia is uh, not, uh, first of all, uh, uh, yes, North Korea is now subsidized by China, uh, but Russia is much smaller economy than China, roughly one-tenth of Chinese GDP, and it also has much less interest, strategic, perceived strategic interest in, in the Korean Peninsula for China, it's something located close to the capital, to the major urban centers. For Russia, it is a land far, far away. So personally, I will not be very surprised if some subsidies will come, but I'm inclined to believe they will not come. And I believe that it will be reasonable not to subsidize this trade. But without subsidies, well, I don't see much prospects for economic or military cooperation. Uh, well, and political smiles and nice words, we are going to hear a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you, Andre. So I want to now turn to like a conversation and sort of dig deeper on some of these issues with you. Um, but before we dig deeper into Russia and North Korea, I actually want to talk about sort of where you ended, which is really with China. Um, how do you see Beijing viewing deeper relations between North Korea and Russia, specifically given the military aspects of this growing relationship? Uh, I think that uh, China don't want Russia to provide too much, indeed. But why should they worry? Uh, because politically, North Korea is much dependent on the Chinese subsidies. Without Chinese subsidies, North Korea's economy, and maybe in the North Korean state, I'm less certain, but definitely North Korean economy will go barely up in a matter of few months. Uh, Russia is less dependent, but it's also quite dependent. It's not much advertised, but the current uh, economic boom I have mentioned, the re reasonably good performance of the Russian economy is possible as long as Chinese are willing to import Russian goods, largely commodities, and they have many other places to buy commodities apart from Russia, so it's their choice. So I believe that I, I don't think that uh, both sides... Uh, uh, because both countries are way too dependent of China, and I don't see how they can challenge China on anything important, especially because it's related to issue which is pretty secondary to from the Russian point of view. Yeah, and if we even look back at the history of the post Cold War period, trade between Russia and North Korea tiny. never really took tiny, off. Yeah. tiny. Yeah. It was basically look in the uh, uh, the trade between Russia and North Korea moved from 2.5 billion US dollars around 1989 to 100 that is 25-fold decrease by 1994 and it has never ever taken um take or take off taking off and on top of that, of course, there is some was some unofficial trade, uh, some smuggling, some trade through third parties, which probably you should. Its actual number uh, amount is probably higher, but still, first same is applicable to China. They also, apart from this officially reported trade, they have even greater amount of smuggling. Uh, they have uh, trade through third parties, so. Uh, actual amount of trade with both countries is larger than reported, uh, but still the ratio is probably the same. And the ratio is, well, trade with China in the mid-2010s was close to 6 billion US dollars. Trade with Russia, as I have said, 100 million. 
see 60 times difference. Yeah. So looking at this sort of trilateral relationship and everything, during the Cold War, North Korea was able to use the Sino-Soviet split to its advantage. Uh, do you see any potential for North Korea to, in essence, play Russia and China off each other to improve what it's able to get from both? Uh, they dream about it, uh, but the balance is not favorable. Uh, because back in the Cold War, in terms of the relative influence and power, at least in East Asia, China and Soviet Union were, rel uh, were relatively equal. Right now, China is far more, far more powerful. And back then, on top of that, uh, Moscow and Beijing were in hostile relations. Now the relations are uh, first are not hostile. Uh, second, there is they are not equal uh, because, as I have mentioned, uh, the uh, trade with China is far more important for Russia than trade with Russia for is important. It's far more important for Russia to yeah. trade with China than vice versa. Uh, so I think that basically uh, it will be very difficult to manipulate such. Uh, relations. North Koreans will try and occasionally they will succeed, but not too frequently. So I want to dig a little bit deeper now into the Russia and North Korea relationship. You noted in remarks that, you know, in some ways this is a moment of convenience for uh, North Korea and Russia rather than a real return to deeper relations. If that's the case, what are North Korea's medium term options? You know, what does it do essentially once it's either out of shells to give to Russia or the war in Ukraine comes to a conclusion one way or the other? First, uh, for North Korea, it's a good luck. They are very lucky regime, actually. They are very lucky. Uh, they First of all, they produced shells. They were expected to sort of throw away eventually, and they suddenly selling it for good money. They are going to get cash. Maybe they will get some technology, maybe, and they will highly likely send workers overseas. And every worker is generating, say, four or five thousand. Well, used to maybe it will be different this, uh, this time, but say ten years ago, a bit less. Every worker was generating about four or five thousand dollars a year per the government. So if they say hundred thousand workers to Russia, well, half billion, basically, and they do very little. It's good money, good money for them. So. There were some reports at the beginning of the war that Russia and North Korea had an understanding to send North Koreans to basically the areas of Ukraine that would need to be redeveloped afterwards. Yeah, easily, easily. I see it's happening very easily. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I have not heard reports, but I will not be surprised at all if it happens uh, because uh, it's a dangerous and difficult work and the Russian workers will go there only if they pay exorbitant amount of money. And the North Koreans will be doing it for significantly less money, which will be exorbitant for them anyway. Sorry for such a cynical capitalist logic, but well. Yeah. But I mean, ultimately, I guess this is the medium term option. Yes. For the yeah. Uh, but again, it's not going to last forever. It's again something which will be for a few years and then gone. So the New York Times reported earlier this week that Russia is helping North Korea evade financial sanctions. To be honest, this isn't too surprising. I kind of would have expected, you know, something like this. But to what extent do you think Russia is willing more broadly to help North Korea evade sanctions? As a part of package, probably yes. If North Koreans are doing something in exchange, why not? Why not? Uh, but it's by nature, such deals are very conspiratorial. 
and uh, well, you are not going to know much about it, and even claims such claims are difficult to verify. But I'm not surprised. Uh, but it's not done out of you know kind of um, solidarity or everything, because I'm pretty sure that North Koreans are also doing something useful in exchange. Like I said, I wasn't surprised at all. You have to provide some kind of... So, if we look at this in then sort of a broader context, pulling out to bring in the United States, South Korea, and Japan, Mm -hmm. um, after the failure of the Hanoi summit, North Korea was already beginning to turn away from engagement with the U.S. and South Korea. Um, It seems this has sort of helped to complete their course correction. So... How does North Korea likely view aligning with Russia and China rather than trying to improve relations with the United States, South Korea, and Japan in terms of the current moment? Uh, Well, they probably would prefer to have better relations with the United States and Japan and South Korea. Uh, Because, uh, but, well, it's the second best option. Uh, Because improving relations with uh, the United States is not possible right now. North Koreans are not going to compromise on the nuclear issue because no matter how much giveaways uh, the Americans are promising, North Koreans understand if you are dead, you cannot be rich. And they understand that without nuclear weapons, well, they saw what happened to Gaddafi, they saw what happened to Saddam Hussein, and they are looking what's happening to Ukraine right now, and they don't want to become number four or five in this list. Uh, so they are not going to surrender nukes without uh, denuclearization. S- dramatic improvement of relations with the United States is difficult or impossible. And the same is applicable to South Korea. South Korea cannot provide North Korea with aid, even if we have a opposition, current opposition, the so-called progressives or liberals back in power. Eventually, they will be unable to do much. Uh, because it's going to be a violation of the UN Security Council resolutions, and they cannot afford it, even if they secretly want it, which is a big if. Uh, so, well, nothing is going to come from the United States and South Korea in the foreseeable future. But fortunately, uh, uh, there is a confrontation between the United States and China, which is a great piece of luck because you can basically get stuff from China. Uh, stuff Chinese would not otherwise do. And then there is a confrontation between Russia and United States and the war in Ukraine, which means even more money. They are lucky. Well, you know, I think it's interesting you raise this because if we go back and look, you know, Hanoi may have been sort of the turning point, mm-hmm. but it seems like there are at least three other things that have lined up to put North Korea in the position where it is today. One of which is US China tensions or competition, yeah. which took and soured the relationship between the United States and China. One is the pandemic, which in essence allowed Kim Jong-un to take, start closing the country off, take a certain more control over the markets Mm -hmm. and other parts of the Mm -hmm. state. Um, And then lastly, the war in Ukraine provided a rationale for Russia to basically open up avenues that had not been opened to North Korea before. Yes. So it seems like yeah. All of these things kind of tie together. Yes. The Kim family is lucky. They have always been lucky. Well, it's better to be lucky than good, they say. So, you know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maybe they are definitely not good, but they are <laughs> definitely lucky. 
so they would like to have uh, actually I think that v- one of their secret dreams long cherished uh, would be a good relations with the United States even playing a role of a kind of you know junior partner of the United States assistant sher- deputy sheriff in this part of the world is a dream which was probably never going to come true but they were serious about it for some time maybe they're still secretly dreaming it uh, but because it's not going to happen well they are getting stuff they wanted from China right now from Russia and it's pretty much as generous as they would get from the United States and South Korea under different situation though yeah, that's fascinating the idea of thinking of North Korea has sort of a deputy security partner for the United States they were playing you know is um, uh, basically David Straub he's called it the strategic partnership fantasy and it has been around for quite a long time so one thing that I think is interesting when we look at sort of how you were analyzing, and I think you're right that the security needs they have for the weapons and why they want them, because as you said, I believe it was, um, it's so good to be rich if you're dead or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think that also says a lot about the relationship they have with China, because one of the things that I don't think it's talked a lot about a lot is that if you look at the sources that they cite, you know, look what happened to Gaddafi, look what happened to Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. The one disadvantage both of those had is that there was no great power sitting on their border who could intervene sort of like China did during Uh the Korean War. So that suggests that there's a fundamental distrust on the North Korean side of Beijing that if something actually really were to go wrong, that maybe Beijing wouldn't protect them. Now they would protect. But 10 years ago, why should Beijing protect them? Yeah. What was the reason for China to get involved with some messy situation in Korea 10 or 15 years ago? I don't see such a reason. Chinese probably didn't see such a reason, and North Koreans didn't see such a reason as well. So their best friend is their nuclear, is their nukes. Yeah. It's like cold logic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're very smart people. They're very cynical. Yes, but they're smart. And why is such a pleasure to talk to them? They don't <laughs> have ideology. They don't have ideology. <laughs> Well, sometimes that's helpful. Um, no, honestly, without kind of, not an open space, but one-to-one in closed rooms, wonderful. I mean, the advantage of not having ideology is it allows you to make See whatever, the world as it is. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of seeing the world as it is, clearly there are implications for the United States and South Korea of deeper ties between Russia and North Korea. So look at this maybe from the other perspective, the U.S.-South Korean perspective. How do you sort of see this playing out? Uh, Again, about Russia, as I have said, it's likely to be a passing period because, uh, as I have tried to explain, of course, I might be wrong, uh, but I think it's not going to last. Uh, there will be better relations and, you know, Russia blocking any kind of uh, resolutions critical of North Korean policy in the UN is going to last for a long time. And North Koreans are also voting in support of Russia in all kinds of the international meetings. Yes, it's going to last, but it's largely, well, it's largely symbolical, especially from the North Korean side, uh, because, you know, the, I don't know, International Postal Union, uh, Russia it will be pleased to have some criti- critical resolution being basically voted against by 
a slightly larger number of countries, but it's not going to be a life changer. Uh, North Koreans, well, for them, it's good to have another power willing to block um, UN Security Council resolutions in their favor, uh, but they have China anyway. Of course, it's better to have two fortresses than one, but still, still. But it's largely symbolical, largely symbolical. I think China is still the country which matters most. So for the United States and South Korea, then, this is more sort of about waiting this relationship out rather than necessarily having to see it as a fundamental change from their perspective. It's not fundamental change. And uh, basically, uh, uh, it's a cynical question, what can be done? Uh, because very often we, I have uh, we heard this something, yes, even in, especially from Washington. They are going to punish North Korea for this. They are going to punish North Korea for that. I always want to ask how exactly. I think maybe by you know this team well, America I, by writing a letter telling them how unhappy we are. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, perhaps Kim Jong Un would feel sad to read such a letter, um, but uh, he, he used to. Ten years ago, he wanted to be loved. Maybe less so now. Yeah. But I mean, I think you know this is the difficult conundrum: is that if Russia is perhaps not on all sanctions, but at least on some mm-hmm. evading, uh, helping us yes, yeah. evade them. Yeah. If China is likely, at least on some, perhaps not as much yes. as Russia, but helping them to evade them. Um, keeping low, lower yeah. profile. Pro- yeah. Profile. That means that, you know, there is less, because the U.S. strategy basically has been, let's pressure them into talks and then take and move ah. into some kind of negotiation. But basically that valve has been released, mm, to, not, at least to an extent. Not completely, to an extent, uh, because I don't see uh, Russia in investing large amount of money into North Korea, partially because it has no reasons to do so and doesn't have enough money to invest. Uh, China has enough money to invest, but it's not going to violate sanctions too openly. And the experience of dealing with North Korea tells both countries that once you invest money to North Korea, you usually kiss it goodbye. Uh, So uh, all things combined, uh, well, uh, it's not that the the North Koreans will enjoy kind of, you know, thriving economic opportunities. They will be still looking for sanctions lifted, which gives some chances for negotiations. Uh, But uh, the question is, what are you going to negotiate? If you are going to talk about denuclearization, it's a non-starter. It's probably still possible to talk about some restrictions imposed on the nuclear and missile program. It's probably, I'm not certain, uh, it's possible sort of revival of the Hanoi deal. Not exactly Hanoi, but the same idea of swapping some of the research and development as well as manufacturing new facilities for a relaxation of sanctions. Is uh, is the U.S. government has appetite for such policy? Is the U.S. public willing to accept such a policy? It's a big question. Two big, different big questions. I believe they are not, actually. It was polite way to say, especially the second. It's a problem because right now, uh, well, uh, when I was talking that North Korea is not going to surrender its nuclear weapons, and they began to talk about it roughly 25 years ago, it was initially a maverick opinion. Then there was minority opinion, there was majority opinion, now it's consensus opinion. Having said that, having said that, uh, it's consensus opinion among the professional North Korea watchers. Uh, the general public will probably have problems with accepting it. Uh, so when uh, once any North, uh, sorry, any U.S. administration makes a deal, ex- 
explicitly or implicitly accepting North Korea, recognizing North Korea as a de facto nuclear power. It will be open to a backlash at the Congress and media, everything. They will be accused of being gutless, you know, co-towing to crazy tyrant, blah, 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 blah. And it means that no U.S. administration is going to get much from getting to such an agreement, because in many, most countries, especially in democracies, domestic policy is far more important than foreign policy. Uh, so unless there is some unusual, very unconventional US president, and I believe we all know the person whose name, surname starts from T, uh, yes, um, yes, I don't see it's going to be, I think it's a non-starter. Uh, but uh, but yeah, even after this, Mister T, uh, it's met President T. I'm not sure whether it's going to. Well, um, so I think you know this is the interesting. We just said we just said no, by the way because so if we go back to Hanoi and everything, and I think this was one of maybe the misconceptions on this Mister T's part, which is that you know at the end of the day, you're right. Domestic politics matters a lot more here, and so. Even had an agreement been struck in Hanoi, there was likely to be very little political benefit domestically. Yeah. But there can be costs to a deal, which you've outlined. And now perhaps that individual you mentioned, his party would have been less likely to take and do that and everything. But that doesn't mean there wouldn't have been a blowback. So I guess the question is, mm -hmm. is, you know, we understand kind of what's constraining the United States from reaching a deal, some of which is our own political system and the backlash you might face. But if we look at the Hanoi deal, which was in essence, Yong Beyond, which was perhaps at the very end defined, but initially not defined for essentially the six major UN sanctions resolutions. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that is a deal that the United States was not willing, even under this out of the box individual you've mentioned, willing to accept. So do you think there's been any recalculation on the North Korean side that perhaps to get what they want, they might have to give up not the whole program and not all the nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, but more than they were willing to put on the table in Hanoi. I think they probably will. Uh, I'm not sure because as time goes by, the probability is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Uh, but I believe if Mr. T becomes a president and uh, approaches Mr. K, uh, Mr. K is going to take it seriously. And talking about Hanoi, I was a bit surprised why bargaining did not start. Uh, because uh, because it was bad proposal. It was a bad deal. But when North Koreans were doing this proposal, they probably did not expect Americans to walk away. They expect Americans to behave like at the Chamadan uh, market. Uh, actually, bazaar to start arguing uh, that, and probably, uh, probably they were willing to give much more than they initially suggested, because you don't basically, if you go to a market, you don't basically tell uh, your maximum price; you start from minimum price. Okay. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think it's probably still possible, but as you have, as you have said, there are many domestic constraints. And yes, it makes sense. Uh, but the U.S. government, U.S. society is structured in a way which makes such reasonable steps very costly for a person who will take it. So probably nobody will take it. So I was going to ask you about the U.S. election. We clearly have started going down this path and you've suggested where things might go with one individual. Um, but I'm curious, that individual may not actually win the election. Uh -huh. So. Um, should their opponent 
win the election. Yeah, which is probably more likely. Even. Yep. How do you see relations between the United States and North Korea happening? Do you think actually, if they could manage the political blowback domestically, that a deal might still be possible with North Korea? Or do you think things go in a different direction? No, I don't see why Mr. Biden is going to change his direction. I think he is likely to have the same team, and we basically have seen these people. And he is more conventional. He is less likely to take risk, make risky decisions. Uh, he is going to be more distracted by the conflicts in Ukraine and Middle East. God knows when, because the world is getting increasingly unstable. Uh, so, frankly, I think it will be uh, the United States will be doing what they have done last five years, busily doing nothing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's what I expected. Uh, so, no, no, uh, you know, this kind of lip service to the idea of talks. Of course, sometimes U.S. officials will tell that they are open to talks without any conditions, nah, as long as North Koreans are going to talk about denuclearization, which is basically makes <laughs> all talks impossible. Uh, yeah, and yeah, no, I think that under Biden, unless something big happens, I don't expect much change. Uh, actually, I'm not taking uh, uh, saying that uh, change will happen under yeah. Trump. I'm saying they might happen. So our vice president is on travel, but I think this is the question he would ask about Biden, even maybe the Trump administration, which is, all right, so if nuclear talks aren't necessarily feasible for one reason or the other, yes, are there other things that you think the United States could talk about North Korea to try and you know, build a better relationship. So maybe someday we could actually talk about the nuclear. Uh, uh, apart nuclear. from nuclear, the more you talk, the better. I simply don't see much appetite. Well, I see appetite on the kind of mid 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 level on the in the US. Uh, well, there are many talks. You know, everything you know, humanitarian cooperation, climate control, environment problems, whichever, forestry, name it. And I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. All right. So before I turn to the audience, and a reminder to everyone watching online to please take and place your question in the YouTube chat function. Um, there's one other issue I want to talk to you about, and this is one that's sort of become a major question here mm -hmm. in the United States over the last few weeks. And that is this idea that there has been a strategic decision made in Pyongyang that it is time to attack South Korea. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, the two gentlemen who made all this noise are safely hiding themselves in California, so I cannot talk to them, <laughs> uh, even though I wanted. And I take this gentleman very seriously. Uh, had somebody else said so, I would not pay attention. Uh, but I still disagree. I try to explain why. They are right in one important regard. Uh, North Koreans are beginning to think seriously about a military solution of the Korean problem, which is invasion of the South. For decades, they did not think seriously about invasion of the South because it was completely hopelessly suicidal. Now they get a hope. They have invested over the last, say, starting from 2016 to 2017, when they acquired efficient deterrence potential, and which was uh, sufficient to guarantee their security. They did not stop, but they began to work on two programs, which both combined are very dangerous. One is development of the ICBMs capable of hitting the continental United States, and they're remarkably successful. 
Second, work on the tactical nuclear weapons and delivery systems. And given how much of their limited resources are investing into these programs, they take it seriously. And the best explanation, I know there are different opinions. Uh, for me, the best explanation, not only for me, of course, uh, but is that they have a dream that one day they will use ICBM as a blackmail tool to make sure that Americans will not get involved in the coming Second Korean War. And they will use tactical nuclear weapons, which are usable on the battlefield, unlike these big, dangerous, unwieldy, normal, regular, uh, high-yield weapons, to neutralize the quantitative and qualitative uh, superiority of the ROK armed forces. And they will do it, and one day they will drive their tanks to Seoul, maybe for maybe they will just uh, do annexation of the South Korea, much more likely they will impose on South Korea some kind of quasi-confederation uh, with you know, South Korean military disbanded and South Koreans paying tributes. Wonderful. It's a dream. It, however, however, I think that it's a very distant dream, which will probably never come true, uh, because they are not ready yet. Because this article you mentioned sort of implies that they are suicidal. That they are going to start a war they are not ready for. No, they are very rational people. They, have, they are masters of Machiavellian politics. And they are not going to start a war they are bound. They are almost certain to lose. They have to have ICBMs and not experimental launches. They have to have deployed sufficient, reliable posts. They have not even tested tactical nukes, and tactical nukes are very tricky. You need to test them a lot to trust them. They have to test it, they have mass produce it, they have to deploy. It's a question of years, years, and years. Maybe decade, maybe more. First, but in order to basically take over Seoul, you need a few things. First, you need military capabilities, which they are working hard to get, but it will take a long time before they will get it. Number two, they need political conditions. It's not enough to have ICBMs to black Americans. It's important to have a blackmailable American government because of ideology, overload, economic crisis, name it. Will it happen? Maybe. Maybe not. When? God knows. It's important to have China, which is at least ambivalent about their great, you know, conquest. Of you like Reconquista, let's say Spanish, if my bad Spanish, I know <laughs> many people have a character. Yeah. Uh, and they need a, a lot of other political conditions which we cannot even think about. So they need military capabilities, they, are, uh, they need political conditions, and they will have to make a decision. And then uh, Her Greatness, Kim Jue, we are talking about very long future, very distant future. Uh, you have to make a decision. Is she going to take risks? Uh, because you know wars are known to be unpredictable. Uh, you believe that you are going to be an easy, victorious war and you get in trouble. We have had thousands of cases. Or even if you win, well, maybe your country wins, but you are dead. Will, you, will she or he or whoever make such a decision? Well, We'll think uh, it will become maybe known in a few decades' time. So, yes, they're moving on this trajectory. 
uh, but it's a very long way. And probably they will never reach their destination because of everything I've mentioned. But the very fact that they're acquiring these capabilities is worrisome. And this is one of the reasons why, personally, I believe Hanoi-style deal gives some chances to stop it. Gives some chances to stop it. So, uh, but again, I don't, I'm not certain whether it's going to happen. Uh, so, however, the, there is another uh, possibility we should mention. Uh, that is a possibility of small-scale military kind of kinetic action uh, taken by the North Koreans as a way to punish South Korean, the Yun government. Uh, it's something like Yongpyeongdo Island incident, some shelling. It's possible, but it's not a war. It's a limited action with a limited number of casualties, which is going to be stopped. I don't see it's going to seriously escalate. So just real quick to go back to what you said about the North Koreans being practical. There's something interesting I thought you said, which I just want to draw it a bit, which is that if they were to attack, they might not actually take a desire to actually completely conquer and occupy the South, but rather to create basically a South that is in a confederation subservient yeah. to them, Yeah. which I find interesting because one of the challenges when we talk about this sort of privately that I think doesn't get talked about enough is the question of... Let's assume that everything goes right for the North Koreans. You're right that there's a U.S. government that decides that we're not going to get involved. We pull our troops out. You know, the North Koreans come in, they win the war, and all the bad scenarios mm -hmm. happen. Is North Korea really prepared for the consequences of actually winning, basically? Meaning you now control a country that's much wealthier than you, that is much more technologically advanced, that has a larger population, that might have a, an insurrection. So it seems like, let's set aside the question of whether they could do it. The question is, Is have they even thought through the consequences of what it would mean, even if everything goes well? And so that's why I think your confederation idea is somewhat interesting of this sort of like halfway house almost. I think it's the only practical solution because they cannot seriously digest such a big meal uh, because they cannot swallow South Korea right now, exactly because of the reasons. And even confederation might be a bit risky. And uh, it might be yet another reason why uh, the decision makers in Pyongyang, even when everything is ready, will decide not to do it because it's too risky politically. Maybe, maybe. But they might decide. And if they decide, I think, this kind of fake confederation, uh, which is basically transforming... Um, South Korea in tribute-paying colony of the North is more likely, more likely scenarios that conquest or classical conquest. Well, this has been a great conversation, but I want to open it up to our audience now. Please raise your hand, and uh, we have a mic coming. Right, we'll start here with Mark in the front, um, and then if you just say your name and affiliation. Oh, thanks very much, Mark Fitzpatrick, uh, board member at PEI. Uh, appreciate very much, Andre, especially your answer to the last set of questions. That was reassuring. I have just a small question, something you said at the beginning about um, if South Korea were to send our, our shells to Ukraine, Russia would uh, provide advanced technology to North Korea possible. and, and uh, it's possible. block it. Is, is this just a supposition or have you ever heard of any, is there any real talk about such a, uh, a deal? Let's say it's supposition. Thank you. All right. I saw Gil over here. Hi. Gil Rossum, the Asan Forum. Uh, 
I'm wondering if you haven't underestimated Russia's interest in using North Korea uh, in challenging the U.S., South Korea, the U.S.-led order. So many underestimated Russia's intentions in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They've underestimated Russia, some of the things Russia's wanted to do elsewhere. Uh, if North Korea were to engage in provocations such as Yongpyong or more serious, wouldn't Russia be inclined to be supportive as it was in 2010? Mm-hmm. And hasn't Russia's overall interpretation of everything from the Korean War, which is really the United States, causing is the basic cause of the war, um, overwhelmingly present in Russian writings. Uh, no. Well, then you this and I are reading problem. different Russian writings. Um, yeah. Whether it's Yuzhebin or Varontsev or uh, even Talaraya to a degree, I overwhelmingly I see this. But at any rate, excellent. what you see, what I'm wondering is how willing is Russia to use North Korean aggressive approaches to build a closer tie to North Korea as a way to strengthen its turn to the East and strengthen its position versus the United States? Uh, yeah, uh, first of all, I don't know how willing, but I'm quite skeptical. Uh, talking about uh, the uh, talks, uh, let's not talk about Jabin and Voronsov, who have never done history research. Uh, but if you look at people who do history research, like, say, Torkunov, who is a key person in the foreign policy, he is a person who published all documents indicating who started the war. He's taken a position that's so at odds with the Russian government. And uh, basically, if you like all writings on the history done by the historians, even as pro-government as possible as it gets, they nobody says it was nobody supports North Korean version about the beginning of the Korean War. Same is applicable to well, basically serious Chinese writing on the issue. Having said that, it was second. It was side remark. Talking about the major reason, uh, well, uh, there is a bit of emotional way, yes, and there was a way to create diversion, but the question is how much is going to be invested into these ideas, even if they prevail. Again, as I have said, I don't see much willingness to invest money right now. I might be wrong, we will see it, but I don't see, yes, blocking, there is Yonpion Island, and Russia, together with China, blocks some resolutions, but we can be pretty sure that any resolution critical of North Korea with possible, but not necessarily possible exception of North Korea doing another nuclear test, which is different, uh, all other resolutions are likely to be blocked in the UN Security Council. Yes, but does it change much? I don't see. I don't see why it's changing. Uh, is Russia going in other ways, you know, to reward North Korea with, you know, uh, truckloads truck loads of, gold, of gold for doing it? Skept- highly skeptical. We'll see. I, I, think, I think it's not going to happen in this regard. Okay. I know there's a couple more questions in-house, but I want to actually give our audience online a chance. So, Sang. So, the first question is, how do you think Russia is mostly paying for DPRK munitions? Is it cash? Or do you think that Russia is also supplying oil and grain? Uh, and also, mm-hmm. do you think it's possible that Russia is offering strategic advice to DPRK on how to play Cold War-style nuclear poker? Uh, second question, please, again. Yeah. 
is is Russia offering strategic advice to North Korea on how to play Cold War style nuclear poker? Uh, nuclear poker, poker. Uh, quite possible, unless they are, you are talking about. Let's start cash or in kind. I don't know, and I don't think it matters uh, because if North Koreans get cash, it's part will be used for fuel and food. If they have fuel, fuel is fungible, you can as easily resell it to get cash. It's basically the same. Uh, talking about nuclear poker, if you believe that we are talking about transfer of nuclear technology, not. A, a transfer of experience of dealing with nuclear weapons, yes, and I think it's good, frankly, surprising. I think they know enough, but uh, maybe it will help a bit for them to be a, a bit less dangerous. So just real quick, I agree with you on that in some ways it doesn't matter whether it's cash or commodities. Um, the two things I might add real quick is one, there was reporting early on that I saw that the Russian, or sorry, that the North Koreans specifically didn't want to be paid in rubles, which would suggest that they would want hard currency as cash. And my guess is the Russians probably need the hard cash for other things. Mm-hmm. So if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably barter. Plus barter, mm-hmm. well, it, there's other advantages to barter, which I'll just leave at that. Um, but so I think that's maybe something else to. And think I about. think it's more likely fuels than yeah. than food. But no. yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree with that too. Okay. Um, so Jim, I had next, and then we'll do Emma. Jim Kelman. Uh, Jim Kelman, former uh, State Department, uh, currently advisor to North Korea Human Rights Watch. Um, in answer to Troy's uh, last question, you created a scenario. Um, where essentially the dog not only catches the bus, but eats the bus, uh-huh. <laughs> which uh, which is unlikely. There is a more likely, less kinetic um, possibility that I'd like you to consider, and that's that, yes, North Korea does some s- smaller kinetic activities to South Korea, like the sinking of the Channel uh-huh. or shelling Lafayette Island. And then when America starts you know, rising up, then they threaten us with, you know, San Francisco for, for Seoul. Uh-huh. And the president of the time, whoever it is, uh-huh. thinks, is this really worth it? Which is the South Koreans, um, you know, dark nightmare. And that eventually affects the withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what do you, how do you assess this? Is this a possibility? Is this more or less of a possibility? It's much less kinetic, um, but perhaps more possible. Mm. For me question. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I believe it might be the uh, first stage of this great conquest plan, uh, because yeah, I can see that when you basically divorce uh, U.S. blackmail, uh, breaking their lines, and then the actual conquest or just establishing control over South Korea. Yeah, it's possible. And it's also likely that without U.S. support, South Koreans will be far more willing to give concessions. Maybe they will just start paying tribute without being uh, subjected to tactical news. Why not? Yeah, it's possible. But once again, uh, uh, they will need to have deployed they, it's possible as long as they will deploy the um, ICBM force and as long as they have tactical needs. So, Emma. 
I'm uh, Emma Chandler Avery, now at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Nice to see you again, Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, first, the best thing about Russia and North Korea developing closer relations is that Washington is paying attention to North Korea again, um, which they weren't for a while there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to ask you on this Hacker Carlin argument um, about North Korea getting closer or making the decision to go to war. I I've never pretended to get into Kim Jong-un's head, um, and I think I mostly agree with you, but I would say that the conditions are better than they have been in the past. And Uh one is for just a technical reason. I mean, their capabilities are growing. They are seeing their missiles tested on on a real battlefield in Ukraine, which I imagine is to their advantage to some extent. And if there is a bit of a block, North Korea, Russia, China forming, um, then what keeps, I think, paranoid, you know, U.S. defense planners up at night is that if there's a conflict in the Taiwan Straits, which seems mm-hmm. more possible than before, mm-hmm. then North Korea would take advantage of that moment. And in the past, we thought of China as sort of keeping North Korea, you know, mm-hmm. from doing anything um, really provocative or that um, that aggressive. But they probably would be more encouraging, as would Russia in that particular moment, just to scramble, you know, the chessboard a bit for the United States. Would you agree with those? And yes, that- uh, basically a few, uh, few remarks. First of all, Taiwan Strait. If something happens in Taiwan Strait, uh, Chinese will be pu- pu- pressing North Korea to create, uh, make some mess. Whether North Korea will do it, it's a big question. Uh, because there is very little loyalty. I would say no love has, is lost between China and North Korea. North Koreans are highly suspicious and quite hostile towards the Chinese, and they will do it only if their rewards are large enough and risks are alone. But they might. They might. Uh, so in case of Taiwan Strait conflict, it's going to become a problem. First. Uh, second, talking about the general block, there is little, very little mutual trust in this block. Uh, so I don't see North Koreans risking something they are not ready for, doing something they are not ready for, just because some nice people in Beijing or Moscow ask them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And if they ask, they will ask, uh, they, their question will be, how much? Can I add one other element to this real quick, which is just, if you had simultaneous attacks on South Korea and Taiwan, rather than simply a, a confined Taiwan conflict. Uh-huh. Does that perhaps play against Beijing's interests? Because then you run a greater risk of drawing in more U.S. allies and so facing a larger combined force. Uh-huh. Okay, um, I saw in the back here, Peter. I'm Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Uh, China has been very, very unhappy with uh, North Korea's nuclear tests. Mm-hmm. Two reasons for that. They're afraid of a blowback war sitting on its border. And secondarily, but perhaps equally important, and three of those tests, radionuclides blew in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tolerance of PRC for uh, North Korean nuclear tests is at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. I want to ask, uh, my fear is that the next test is going to be at sea. Uh, to try and get away from all these problems and to create sort of the ultimate black swan. I'm wondering what Russia's position is with respect to North Korean nuclear tests, wherever they occur. Do you have a feel for that? Uh, I think that both Russia and China don't want this nuclear test. Uh, 
And it might be the reason why we have not seen the test. The satellite imagery seemingly indicates that uh, everything was ready one and a half, uh, nearly two years ago, but nothing ha has happened. And, um, and we, uh, we spent, say, 2022 waiting for the test to, test to happen. It didn't. Uh, it's now sort of drifted away, the issue. And I think that it's one of very few conditions Chinese and or Russians, I believe both, uh, put on North Korea. If you want to get what you are getting, don't do it. Uh, because on top of that, also there are uh, worries about proliferation, which are probably stronger in China, uh, because uh, proliferation might trigger a nuclear domino around China. I mean, uh, South Korea goes nuclear, which is not impossible. Uh, Japan will go nuclear. Vietnam will go nuclear. Burma will go nuclear. Indonesia will go. Everybody will go nuclear. <laughs> I know it sounds like strange, but it's not strange. If there, you, it might be a domino, and nearly all these countries will develop nukes to deter China. Uh, so it's not what China wants. Russia is probably more tolerant now about proliferation, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure there are different opinions. Steve. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thank you, Andre. This has been a really great conversation. Um, it's always a pleasure seeing you. And uh, I'm sure this is something we'll be talking about a lot more. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.